are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me for today's live question and answer program. I come to you here on a Thursday afternoon from my home on the west coast of the United States. And in this time zone, it's 12 noon. I don't know what times it is in particular place you are in the world, but we're very pleased that we have a global audience of people and that um, you can come here and join us today. What I want to talk to you about today as a lead question, because what we do here on a Thursday afternoon is I begin with a lead question usually something that comes in by email or social media or a leftover question from before. But I begin with a lead question and then we go on to the questions that come in over the live chat, both with our YouTube viewers and with our TWR 360 viewers, whom we want to welcome our audience from Trans World Radio. Now, if you've been with us live over the past few months, maybe you know that we've had a lot of technical problems. Man, it's been discouraging. Um, We get buffering, we get delays, we get interruptions. And because of this frustration, I had a brilliant idea for last week. My brilliant idea was, since we've had good technical connection before with me just using my iPhone and uh, doing it from another location or even from my car, from whatever vehicle I've been in, I said, I'm just going to drive to a place that has a great 5G cell signal and I'm going to do it from my truck there. So I drove to a place, I got ready, the cell signal was great, we started the broadcast and then about six minutes into the broadcast, my phone overheated because I had it um, attached to a mount that was on the windshield and even though it wasn't especially warm where I was sitting, it was warm right where the phone was. And the phone overheated and we just completely cut out. And I just said, that's it. We're not doing anything more for the day. And that was it for last week. So what we're doing today is I'm going to pick up where I left off. Today's theme is let's try it again. And the lead question is a follow-up to I spoke too soon from last week. So let me go through the whole question here with you. Two weeks ago, during the question and answer, we had this question from our viewer, Godchild. And this was the question. Regarding Joshua 7, on April 15, 2021, you answered that it was Achan's whole family that was stoned and burned. But your commentary says that it was just Achan and his possessions. Please clarify. Now, when I got that question, of course, I'm always interested in a question that asked me to clarify something from my commentary. Um, If you aren't aware of it, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful, and you can get it absolutely free at the website EnduringWord.com. Hey, by the way, we've just come out with an amazing new update to our app. And so I want to recommend everybody who's already downloaded our app. There's something like 400,000 of you out there. It's completely free. Go to either your uh, Apple Store or App Store for Apple or uh, your Google Play Store. Download it uh, for either your iOS device or your Android device. And if you have already downloaded it, update it because we've issued a wonderful update. You'll find that very helpful. So people bring me a question from either the website or uh, the commentary on the app. I'm interested in answering it. So when Godchild asked this question that basically said, in Joshua chapter 7, you said uh, that Achan's family was not burned. It was just Achan and his possessions. But then in a Q&A on April 15th, I said that it was his whole family. And my response a couple weeks ago to God's child was something along the lines of, Well, look, I don't really recall what I wrote in my commentary, but I'm sure, pretty sure it says in Joshua chapter 7 that the whole family was executed. And that was just off the top of my head, but I got curious about it. So I later looked it up in my commentary. And now I think that I spoke too soon to Godchild 
and I'd like to expand a bit on it all. I, I don't know if I'm saying I'm offering a correction, but certainly an expansion because the issue is more complicated than I first thought. Now, this whole situation deals with Achan's sin, which must be understood in the context of Israel's conquest of Canaan and the Canaanites. Canaan was the land. The Canaanites were the various tribes, peoples that lived within the land. Now, that conquest of the Canaanites was not only a war to take possession of the land that God had promised to the children of Israel way back in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That that was true. But it was also a unique war of judgment against the Canaanites. The Canaanites, at that time in their history, were a particularly sinful and depraved people whom God literally gave hundreds of years to repent. So, Israel's war against the Canaanites was a unique war of God's judgment, just as God sometimes used other nations to bring judgment against his people. I can think especially in the conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians and the conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians. Those were wars of judgment against God's people. On the same principle, God, at least on this occasion, used his people to bring a war of judgment against the Canaanites. Now, because it was a war of judgment, God told his people, and you'll find this in the book of Joshua, that they were to receive no spoil from the battles, nothing at all. Now, there were a few reasons for this, but one of the most important reasons was that God did not want his people to profit, to gain, to be enriched by a war of judgment. Such wars are the holy expression of God's sorrow at the necessity of judgment. And he did not want his people to gain or to be happy at it all happening in front of them. In other words, God didn't want any of his children to say, Hooray, it's a war of judgment. Look at all the gold I got when I plundered this Canaanite village. No. Therefore, Israel was strictly commanded that when they conquered a Canaanite city, none of the spoil could go to them. It didn't go to the tabernacle. It didn't go to the priests. It didn't go to Joshua. It was all to be destroyed. Now, in the battle to conquer Jericho, the first battle that Israel fought coming into the promised land in the days of Joshua, one man, just one man, among Israel disobeyed this command, and he took some of the spoil for himself. His name was Achan, and he took some gold, some silver, and some clothing. He took it back to his tent, dug a hole, and buried it all underneath his tent. After Jericho, which was a mighty city, probably the best defended in all of Canaan, then Israel fought a small city named Ai. And Israel was defeated at Ai. Why? Because God's blessing was not with them because of Achan's compromise at Jericho. So God dealt with Achan. God exposed his sin and brought him to judgment. And here is the description in Joshua chapter 7, verses 22 through 26. Here's the passage I want to put before you right now. We read here, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Now verse 24, Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. Now, verses 25 and 26. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, 
Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Um, isn't that the Valley of Trouble or something like that? Okay, so that's the text that we're dealing with. Now, the question that Godchild had back then has to do with what's going on here. Now, it says here specifically in verse 24, I believe it is, that his sons and his daughters were involved in this judgment. How they were involved in this judgment is the specific question. Now, if you'll notice, in verse 23, it says specifically, them, in three places, and in verse 23, them refers to the object. They took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and laid them out before the Lord at least according to my reading of it, them in Joshua chapter 7, verse 23, refers to the objects that Nathan, excuse me, that uh, Achan took, those objects. Now, if you take a look at verse 24, uh, it continues on. Verse 24, it says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garments, the wedge, the sons, the daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. In verse 24, them seems to refer to both the items that Achan took and to his sons and daughters. Now, here's the tricky part, if you want to say that. Verse 25. Verse 25 says, So Israel burned him with stones. And then verse 26 says, They raised over him a giant heap. That's focusing on Achan alone. But then it says in verse 25 that they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Okay, so here's the simple point that we're making here. That it's possible that when it says they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones, that it's referring to the objects that it was taken from um, Achan's tent, the objects that he had stolen in the conquest of Jericho. Now, I'm going to admit, the most natural reading of verse 25 suggests that this included the people, the sons and daughters. But here's where we come into some difficulty. Ezekiel chapter 18 tells us that God does not judge the children for the sins of the parents, that each stands on their own before God. So, in principle, either the children of Achan participated in his sin, or they were spared this judgment. Now, I got to tell you, to be truthful, I can take it either way. I really can. I just don't have a problem taking it either way. Um, Because the mere fact that Achan buried these items underneath his tent gives an indication that this judgment uh, came upon uh, the sons and the daughters because they knew. How could they not know if their father came in and dug a hole underneath the tent and buried that they were in some sense participants in the cover-up of his crime? And if that's the case, then you could say that it was just that the sons and the daughters perished with him. Or, I do think it's possible, that in the reference there, that it's referring to the objects that Achan stole being stoned and then burned, and that his sons and his daughters were brought there only as witnesses to the fact. They were witnesses of the sins. So I think it's plausible to believe that they were not stoned, but called out as witnesses. Now, I just want you to know, Godchild, after looking into it either way, I I could take it either way. And I want you to know that there's a sense in which I'm comfortable with it either way. Now, I know sometimes we're supposed to act as if we're uncomfortable with the judgments of God. And there is a visceral and emotional level in which we kind of shrink back from this idea of God being the great judge. But let me tell you something. God's judgment is just and true and right. 
Now, let me explain something to you about the judgment of God. It is true that according to Ezekiel chapter 18, that God does not judge the children for the sins of the parents. But understand this. God does not only judge individuals. He also judges nations, cities, communities, even down to the family. And when God does so, there are people who are relatively innocent who are caught up in the judgment that comes upon a nation, a city, a community, or whatever. When God used the Babylonian armies to judge wicked Jerusalem for her great sin, there were children who died in that, or were who enslaved or exiled, even though they had not directly participated in the sins of that community. So, it's possible that if the judgment against Achan extended to his family in Joshua chapter 7, it's because God was carrying out the same principle of judgment. God was saying, this is the principle of judgment that you are carrying out against the Canaanites. I'm going to apply the same principle of judgment against Achan's family. I would see that to be part of the just working of God's judgment. But I must say, at the end of it all, we agree with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 26. Are you familiar with that passage? Genesis chapter 18, verse 26 says simply this, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course, it's presented there as a rhetorical question. The idea being, of course, the judge of all the earth will do right. Now, friends, it's fine to ask questions. It's fine to seek clarity. It's wonderful to try to understand the scriptures, but we dare not take away God's right to judge. Because in the end, all of his judgment is right. I find it very curious that many people who think that God has no business judging anyone and they question everything about the judgments of God. Now, please, I'm not putting God child in this category at all. I think they asked a legitimate question there. But there are many people who do think that God has no business judging anyone. And they want to question and evaluate and, and judge God's judgment all the time. They have no trouble judging God. Let me tell you, that's not how it works. God is the one who has the right to judge us. So, with that... um. I just say thank you for that, and I'm glad I could finally get to that from last week. Um, I'm going to go through some questions that came in last week that I wasn't able to get to. They came in in the first few minutes before we had to cut short. So I'm going to try to move through these questions fairly quickly uh, because we're going to try to get to more questions than usual. Okay, first of all, going back to last week, Mariel asks a question. How was Jesus's financial situation? Is it true that he was very poor or is that a myth? Mariel, I think that it's possible. Okay, we know that Jesus was a relatively poor man. He said, and I can't quote you chapter and verse. You could look this up yourself. He said, uh, listen, uh, the what... Uh, I'm doing this as a paraphrase from my mind. So if I don't get exactly right, the bird have nests, the foxes have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head is what Jesus said. I don't have a home is what Jesus said. We also know from the gospel of Luke that Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry was supported by the generosity of a group of uh, generous women who followed him around and provided for his need. Maybe provision came from other places as well, but we know that there was a group of generous patrons of Jesus who supported his ministry. Jesus lived as a simple man without a lot of possessions. And when he died, the only thing that he had was his clothing. Um, and that's what the soldiers gambled for. So Jesus was not a rich man. I would describe him as a relatively poor man. But I do think that it's possible for people to exaggerate the poverty of Jesus. Jesus was not a beggar. Jesus did not go without. Jesus was not hungry because he didn't have food provided for him. 
His God and Father provided for all his needs, but very simply so. So, Mario, I would say that Jesus was relatively poor, but he was not extremely poor. And we don't want to exaggerate the wealth of Jesus, because clearly the scriptures say that in some measure he lived as a simple man in regard to material things, but we don't want to exaggerate his poverty either. He, he wasn't a destitute beggar uh, who didn't have money for the food he ate. He, his needs were provided for. I hope that helps you there, Mario. Next question comes from Vikas, who asked this question. How did Ezekiel suffer the same for Jerusalem so every prophet has to go through with all struggles? Well, Vikas, I um kind of trying to get the, the essence of your question. And by the way, we copy down all these questions and put them in the details for this video. So if you don't quite get a question right as I'm reading it, go to the details of the video after we've uploaded it or after it's been published and you can get these questions uh, written out. Basically, Vikas, often, though not always, God puts his prophets through an experience similar to what the people he's prophesying to are going through. And so since in both the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, Judah, the southern king of Israel, was undergoing a lot of judgment, it was a difficult time for those people, for those prophets. And we wouldn't regard that as an absolute law, but as a general principle as well. Okay, let me go on to the next question. Another one from Mariel. Um, How is the baptism of the Spirit uh, Mary, I don't know exactly how, but the baptism of the Spirit is when Jesus Christ bestows his Spirit upon a person in abundant, beautiful measure. Now, th- there is significant debate within the Christian world whether this is something that happens to every believer when they're born again, or if it can or sometimes is a subsequent experience. I lean towards a subsequent experience thing, but I certainly believe that it can happen for a person when they are born again. The the important thing to realize is that when a person is born again, they do receive the Holy Spirit. There are not some Christians who have the Spirit and some Christians who don't, though not every believer has the same experience with the Holy Spirit. Um... So I'm sure that if you go to our website, you can find some more in-depth answers upon that important question. Darren asks this question. um, Would Sodom and Gomorrah be a picture of what ancient Canaanite culture was like? Uh, Darren, yes, in some respect, uh, although we must recognize that that was 400 years before. But notice, um, in the days of Abraham, God said that Uh, The Canaanite culture was ripe for judgment, but that he was going to hold off on his judgment. And so he was going to hold off on his judgment because uh, the iniquity of the Canaanites was not yet ripe. So yes, you could say that a picture of the sinful Canaanites was Sodom and Gomorrah, and then that got even worse over a period of 400 years. Good question there, Darren. And then finally, before I go into the questions that have come just today, Audra asks this question. Do you believe that King Saul was saved? If not, is it possible to prophesy without being saved? Okay. We can't with confidence speak as to whether or not another person is saved, or at least we can't do that all the time. Accepting that limitation, I would say, I do not think that King Saul was saved. Seeing how he ended his life, especially with the rejection of God's warning given to him at um, Endor, through the witch of Endor, and the appearance of Samuel to him. To me, the ending of Saul's life is very dark. I would suppose, though I can't say with certainty that he was not saved now, it is possible for God to even use someone who's not saved to prophesy. We find this in the Gospels, where, who was it? Was it Annas or Caiaphas? Either the high priest or the acting high priest said, as an unwitting prophecy, 
that it was good that one man, Jesus, die for the sake of the whole nation. And John specifically tells us that he didn't know what he was saying, but he was speaking a prophecy of the greatness and the importance of the work of Jesus Christ. So yes, it is possible, I would say, for a person to not be saved and still for God to use that person as their mouthpiece. Um, There's probably a few occasions in the scriptures where we could point that out. Okay, let me go on now to the questions that have come in today. Robert asks a question. Can you speak about the fine line between repentance and works? Well, Robert, I don't know if I would draw a line between repentance and works. To truly repent is to do a work of some kind. And that's fine. That's good. But I would say that the line is not between repentance and works, or that's not the fine distinction. The fine distinction has to be made between repentance and faith. Um, Repentance and faith are not the same thing, but they are vitally related. If you truly repent, you will believe. If you truly believe, you will repent. In this sense, they are two sides of the same coin. They are very much directly related to each other. Now, if someone truly believes, they will repent. They'll carry out the effect of that belief. So I describe it like this sometimes. Um, Repentance describes what it is to turn towards God. So if I'm going to put my trust in God, I have to take trust away from myself. I have to no longer trust uh, sin and self and an ungodly world around me, but I have to turn my trust towards God himself. Well, you could say the turning away from sin and self is repentance and the focus upon God himself is my faith. So repentance is a form of a work Uh, But it is most pointedly that turning away. It's the partner of faith. I hope that helps you there, Robert. Okay, next question comes from Jordan, who asks, At the moment, Nigeria is under great persecution. For example, 50 Christians were just murdered on Pentecost Sunday. Is it a sin for them to defend themselves against extremists? Jordan, um, this is a good question and a worthy question. Because what we have here are two principles at work. Um, First of all, the scriptures do give to humanity the right of self-defense. I just think that this is a basic right that the scriptures give to people. And I would say that Jesus and his disciples were careful for their own self-defense. Look, I, I, I don't have the verses right in front of me. But I know that there's at least two references to the fact that the disciples carried weapons with themselves. On one time they said to Jesus, hey, we've got a couple of swords. And Jesus said, well, we won't need those right now. On another occasion, Peter, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took out a sword and cut off the ear. It was, it was a foolish, futile act. But Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter still had a sword with him. The disciples of Jesus carried weapons And Jesus did not tell them not to do that. So we have on the one hand a biblical right to self-defense. On the other hand, we have the responsibility, especially in our role as believers, to uh, meekly submit unto God and to not always resist violence. I would put this up honestly to individual conscience. You you can find a verse on either side, and if you make that verse an absolute, then you erase the other. So so I would never say that a Christian should always practice self-defense. Neither would I say a Christian should never practice self-defense. I do think that it's wrong for a society to take away the ability of people to defend themselves. If a person chooses 
to deny themselves the access or the ability to defend themselves, that's fine. That's their choice. But for a society to take away the ability or the means of people to defend themselves, that's a whole nother thing. I would say that there would be nothing wrong with believers in persecuted places like Nigeria right now uh, forming um, security groups to guard and ensure the safety of people who were worshiping God. Now, I wouldn't say that that would be necessarily a command, but it would certainly be permitted for them to have guards armed and capable of defending and keeping the peace. These are complicated questions. And again, I can show you scriptural lines that you could follow on either side that would sort of erase either position. But our, our job in coming to the Bible isn't to erase positions. It's to understand what God says in his whole counsel. So Jordan, thank you for that. And I would recommend to um, our viewers, our listeners, that you pray for people. There have been thousands of believers martyred for their faith in certain African countries just in the last few years. It's something that the world pays very little attention to. And it's something that any um, any decent person should decry. This massacre of innocent people just for worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So, uh, Jordan, I hope my answer has made some sense to you. Um, I certainly think that it's um, permitted by the scriptures to provide that kind of defense. And I would say that most of Christian history has understood it that way. Okay, let me go into the next question here from Lucho. It says, in Genesis chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel, what was the language that the people spoke before they were dispersed? Well, Lucho, that's a good question. And uh, the Bible doesn't specifically tell us. I'll tell you what the Jewish rabbis say. Let's say, of course, it was Hebrew. <laughs> the scriptures are given to us in Hebrew. Um, whatever dialogue we have in humanity uh, before uh, Hebrew, uh, before Genesis chapter 11, it's all given to us in Hebrew. So that's one answer. I don't know if it's the answer, um, but why not? Why not say it was Hebrew? Uh, again, we can't answer this definitively, but we could say that it's certainly a possibility. So hope that's helpful for you there. Anya asked this question. I have two questions about fasting. Number one, why is it important to fast? Number two, why does it make a difference? For example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. And then in Matthew chapter 17, it says, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, Anya, happy to answer this question. I want to give a greeting to Anya and her husband, Janos, and their whole family in Hamburg, whom I just visited a couple weeks ago, was there with them a week ago last Sunday, and had a wonderful time with the Hench family and with them and their four lovely children. And uh, Anya, I'm happy to answer this question. Thank you as well, Anya, for your work on our German translation project. We're so grateful for the people from ICF in Munich and uh, their associated churches and our whole extended team of translators for all the wonderful work that they're doing to translate uh, the Bible commentary into German, and they're making wonderful progress along the way. Now, on to Anya's question, who basically asks two questions. Number one, why is it important to fast? Well, I, I think there's a couple reasons why it's important to fast. Uh, first of all, fasting demonstrates a scriptural principle that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, we, we want to say that there are things more important than the food we eat. Now, for some of us, that's not true, is it? For some of us, the most important thing in life to us is the food that we eat. But it's important for the people of God to find ways to demonstrate that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that's number one. 
It's a demonstration of the truth of a scriptural principle. Number two, it's a valuable form of self-denial. There is value in learning how to say no to the desires of the flesh. We know that every believer must do this. I can't eat everything I would like to eat. I can't drink everything I might want to drink. I can't ingest everything I might want to address. I can't do everything with my body sexually that I might desire to do with my body sexually. No, there is a time and a place for us to say no to the desires of our flesh. And fasting is one way, it's not the only way, but it's one wonderful God-given way to keep the flesh under discipline, to learn how to say no to our flesh. So number one, it demonstrates that man does not live by bread alone. Number two, it demonstrates a, a discipline or a dying to the flesh. And number three, it is a way to demonstrate focus unto God. Uh, most of us are familiar with people and situations in our own lives or in other people's lives where we were so worried or fascinated or consumed with something that we forgot to eat. Our focus was so complete upon our, our child was in the hospital and we were so focused on that situation that we didn't even think of eating or working on a project or an inventor in his workshop, whatever it would be. Well, fasting is a way to demonstrate that principle to God. God, I am so focused on you and your will and the extension of your kingdom on this earth that I'm going to set aside eating for the present moment. So for these and other reasons, fasting is important. It's a demonstration of the truth that man does not live by bread alone. It's an expression of self-discipline and dying to the flesh. And it is a way that we show priority and passion unto God. Now, for those reasons, fasting makes a difference. It honors God when we put him first, even before the food that we eat. It honors God when we die to the flesh and learn how to, in certain ways, deny the flesh. It honors God when we put a focus upon him and his kingdom. And uh, since God honors those things, God honors the practice of fasting. Now, friends, there are very few Christians who fast regularly. This is a neglected discipline in the Christian life. And I'll just be very straightforward for, with you. Um, my, my wife and I, we don't have a scheduled time of fasting in the week or in the month, but normally, just in the course of our lives, we will fast a day or two a month and sometimes more. A lot of this we've learned from the wonderful example of my father-in-law. My father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, who may be watching right now. I know Nils and my mother-in-law, Gunnar, often watch from their home in Sweden. And he is a man who has learned and experienced so much in the practice of fasting. He's even written a book that you can get on Amazon. Maybe we'll put the link in the details. It's titled Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. And you can get that book on Amazon. Uh, so th that gives more information about fasting. But again, the, the reason why it has effectiveness is because it honors God for the reasons that I just mentioned before. Hope that's helpful for you, Anya. And uh, we'll try to remember to put the link to that book in our um, details to this particular video. Next question comes from, and I, I have a first name and a last name on this question as it's related before. I'm just going to read the last name because it's simpler to say uh, Olumu. Um, Olumu asks this question. The Bible teaches us to obey our spiritual leaders. Who is my spiritual leader exactly? The lead pastor of the denomination or the pastors of all the churches I ever attended and in what way? Olomu. Again, forgive me for not pronouncing your first name correctly or, or at all, but Olomu, um, I would say that the spiritual leaders that God has put you under right now, I would consider first and foremost to be 
um, the pastors and elders of the congregation that you're committed to right now. I, I wouldn't look especially to denominational leaders above them. I wouldn't look necessarily to uh, past pastors of congregations that you maybe attended before. But the church family, the church fellowship that you attend right now, the pastor and the elders of that particular congregation, I would regard them as being, uh, most pointedly, the first line of spiritual leaders that God would call you to submit to. Um, They're the ones who have the care for your soul. They're the ones who are with you in daily life. And so while previous pastors of yours or denominational leaders of yours may deserve respect, and God may call you to submit to them in some respect. But most pointedly, I would say that it would be the pastor and elders of the particular congregation that you attend. But I do want to say something, Olomu. I think it's important to recognize that. God never calls us to an absolute submission to any human authority, whether it's in the uh, church, whether it's at our workplace, whether it's with the civil government, whether it's in the home between a husband and wife, whether it's in the home between a parent and a child, all of those are spheres of submission that God has commanded, yet God has never commanded absolute submission in a human relationship. Why do I say this? Because if any human being asks you to sin or tells you to sin or commands you to sin, you're not obligated to do it. We should obey God rather than man. And so God never calls us to absolute submission in every uh, valid uh, arena of submission that he calls us to. Again, I I hope that is understandable to you there, Olam. I hope I explained it well enough. And thank you for your question. Jennifer asks this question. What's the difference between age of consent and yet some adults later in life getting saved on their deathbed. Well, Jennifer, I don't know if I would say that there's a difference between the two. You're talking about different concepts. Um, Age of consent, I think that perhaps you're speaking of maybe an age of accountability. Again, I don't regard the question as being entirely clear. Um, An age of accountability would be... um, an age, and we don't know the exact number, but we know that God holds people to greater accountability the more awareness and understanding they have. And presumably, there's a place where God holds an individual responsible for their own spiritual and no longer under the governance or guidance or authority of parents or guardians or whatever. So there's that age of that, and that... Um, getting saved on their deathbed. Yes, I mean, it is possible and true for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ in their very last moments. I've seen it happen. Maybe you have too. It's wonderful. It's powerful. It's a great expression of um, the goodness and the grace of God. But we need to be very careful that we do not presume upon this. God forbid that anybody would say, I'm not going to get my life right with Jesus Christ now because I can always do it on my deathbed. Dear friend, you don't know if you'll have a deathbed. Maybe your life will be taken from you in a moment, in an unexpected moment, and you'll have no opportunity, no chance to repent. No, your day is... To repent and believe is now. And you are presuming upon a lot if you say you'll leave it for your deathbed. I like this saying, and it's speaking of the thief on the cross, which somebody might say is the only deathbed conversion that's contained in the scriptures. The thief on the cross. You know, the the, the thief, I always forget if he was the guy on the right or the left, but the guy on one of the sides of Jesus on the cross. He was saved in the last few moments of his life. And I like what one preacher said. This isn't original to me, but one preacher said this. He said, there 
is one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would despair. The door is open right up until the time it is closed. So there's one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one despair, but there is only one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would presume. Friends, it's a presumptuous thing to delay your repentance and faith because you believe you can do it at a later time. Hope that's helpful for you there, Jennifer. Let me go on to the next question here from Barry, who asks, regarding Daniel's 70th week vision, is the end of the 69th week at Christ's death on the cross? Does the 70th week begin just prior to Christ's return to earth? Okay, Barry, you're asking a question about biblical prophecy, what sometimes we call eschatology, the area of biblical understanding and theology that refers to the end times, the last things. And whenever I talk about this, I always want to say that Christians from different backgrounds have different opinions. This is things of contention and not complete clarity in the scriptures necessarily, or at least not the same clarity that we have on other issues. Uh, And so I always want to be respectful to people who disagree with me. But then again, I don't mind saying what I believe. And so, Barry, since you're asking me the question here, I'm going to give you my answer uh, about this particular question. Um, I believe that the 69th week of Daniel culminated at the triumphal entry when Jesus presented himself to Israel as Messiah the King. He was not received as Messiah the King, especially by the leadership of the Jewish people at that time. So I believe that that was the end of the 69th week, and I rely on the chronology of a great scholar of several generations ago named Sir Robert Anderson, who detailed all of this in his book titled The Coming Prince. Now, I understand um, Robert's and Sir Robert Anderson's a chronology and scholarship is doubted by many people today, but I agree with John Walverd, who in his commentary on the book of Daniel says that nobody has been able to conclusively refute it. In other words, it's one thing to say, um, whether it's true, it's a thing to say that it's been conclusively disproven. But I, there's things about Sir Robert Anderson's chronology that I like, that I favor. And his concept was this, was that Jesus fulfilled the first 69 weeks, uh, what would that be, 483 years at the triumphal entry when Israel, especially the leaders of the Jewish people at the time, did not receive Jesus as Messiah the King. Then God reserved the final week to be fulfilled at a later time. And I believe that we're still waiting for that 70th week of Daniel and the fulfillment of that Daniel chapter 9 prophecy. Again, I I don't mind saying that these are things in dispute among believers, and you'll find believers who uh, have a different opinion on those things, but uh, hey, this is my Q&A. Let me tell you something. Nobody else in the room with me right now. There's just some chickens outside. That's all there is with us. And so I'm giving you the answer that I would give for this answer. SNL asks the question, What is your stance on keeping the Sabbath? From what I understand, faith and resting in Jesus is enough. However, I do see many Christians challenge this view. SNL, uh, I do not believe that Sabbath observance is compulsory for Christians. I believe it's part of the Old Testament law that was fulfilled in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that's why it says in Colossians that we should let no man judge us regarding a new moon or Sabbath. That's why it says in Hebrews that we have a Sabbath rest that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For the Christian, every day is a day to cease from work and to find our rest in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm putting aside the issue of whether or not the Sabbath is helpful or good or God-given as an institution. I'm simply dealing with the issue, is it a matter of religious observance for a person to not work one day out of seven? And I would say, no, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I know some people would object. They'd say, well, listen, it's in the Ten Commandments. I know it's in the Ten Commandments. 
the Ten Commandments were given primarily to Israel. And it's part of the Mosaic Law. And we freely understand that there are parts of the Mosaic Law that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And because they are fulfilled, we don't have to do them anymore. Such as animal sacrifice. Friends, don't neglect this. Animal sacrifice was just as much a part of the Mosaic Law as the command to keep the Sabbath. Simply is. So we see animal sacrifice rightly fulfilled by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see the Sabbath as perfectly fulfilled in the Sabbath rest that God gives his people in Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that it's wrong for a Christian to observe the Sabbath. We have freedom in Jesus Christ. And if you want to observe the Sabbath, you have perfect freedom in Jesus Christ to do so. God bless you and do it. Just don't think you that it makes you any more right with God than someone who does not observe the Sabbath. That's the only thing we're talking about is whether it's a ground of righteousness before God, whether it's a command that we must obey before God. But friend, if you want to keep the Sabbath, God bless you in keeping it. You have perfect freedom in Jesus. I don't think you should violate my freedom to not observe the Sabbath as it is written in the scriptures or as it's commanded under the old covenant. Let me say it that way. And I think that you should observe my freedom to not keep the Sabbath and I will certainly observe your freedom to keep the Sabbath. That's how it works with these matters of Christian liberty. That's my view on this SNL. I think the scriptures make it very plain in the New Testament that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And though Christians are free to observe it if they would like to, they no longer have the same obligation to as was commanded Israel under the law of Moses. Okay, next question comes from Race, who says, In your commentary on Ecclesiastes, it seems to suggest that the writing is not inspired and Solomon gets things wrong. Well, uh, can you clarify your views on the writings of this book? Race, let me just go on record here. I absolutely, positively, 100% believe that the book of Ecclesiastes is inspired by God. All scripture is given by inspiration. And if I wrote anything in my commentary on Ecclesiastes that would lead somebody to believe that it's not inspired, then either I was confused or not expressing myself well, uh, which is certainly possible. Look, sometimes we just don't communicate well. But I definitely believe that every word of the book of Ecclesiastes is inspired scripture. What I do believe is that in the book of Ecclesiastes, through much of the book, Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing from the perspective of a fool. And therefore, some of the things that he says are not true in the way that he presents them. I'll give you an example. And again, I can't quote a particular verse from Ecclesiastes or give you the chapter and verse, but you, you may be familiar with the passage in Ecclesiastes that says um, that the point of life is eat, drink, and die, and eat, drink, and enjoy yourself, for tomorrow we perish. You know, like that's kind of the whole idea there with the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what life should be lived. Well, that, that isn't a godly way to live. Solomon truly spoke, and he truly spoke, but according to the perspective of a fool, not according to the perspective of a righteous, wise man. Now, we have examples of this in other places, too. Um, we have instances in the Bible where Satan speaks, and what he says is a lie. It's wrong, but he truly said it. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, you have Solomon speaking sometimes from the perspective of a fool. And it's true that he said it, and it's true that fools think this way, but it's not true that we should do it. I, I hope that explains that. It's a little bit complicated, and sometimes I wonder if I'm explaining it right. But race, I certainly do believe that every word of the book of Ecclesiastes, as is the rest of the scriptures, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, next question comes from Donald, who says, When does a fetus become a living soul? 
Adam became a living soul when God breathed in his nostrils. A fetus does not start to use God's air breath until 10 to 12 weeks. Is this when it becomes a live soul? Well, Donald, this is a complicated question because it's a question that in some regards needs to be informed by biology. It's another question that needs to be informed by what the Bible says. And I would just say, I don't know that we have a firm marking point for when a person becomes a living soul. And because we don't have a firm marking point, I would say that we should err on the side of safety and regard it as at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception, you have life that will develop into human life. It won't develop into bird life. I'm looking out at my chickens right here. It's not going to develop into a chicken. It's not going to develop into dog life. It's not going to develop into elephant life. It's going to develop into a human life. Um, If the normal, healthy progress continues, what exists at the moment of conception will develop into a human life and should be treated with respect because of that. We don't have a firm marking point for when um, that person is regarded as a living soul. We just know that that entity exists as an individual from the moment of conception. And if we're going to play it safe, I think that's when we regard life worth protecting. I think this has relevance to what methods of birth control that people use. It certainly has relevance to our understanding of abortion and what kind of abortion laws um, should be in place. But I, I haven't found any conclusive argument from the Bible or from science to regard it as anything other than conception, because at that moment, that entity within the mother's womb is... Uh, under normal and healthy progression, which we understand not all progression is normal or healthy, but under normal and healthy progression will be a human being and it will be nothing else other than a human being and a human being that is made in the image of God. It's almost as if we're asking this, when does a person become made in the image of God? And again, I can't give you any marking point for that except at the moment of conception. That's uh, my understanding of that, Don. We're going to deal now with our last question of the day from Verde. Verde asks this question. Based on what you've studied or heard, Babylon the Great, the harlot, is it probably Mecca, Rome, or New York? Uh, Now, Verde is referring to a passage in the book of Revelation that speaks of Babylon as a representation of the world system and um, this great city, Babylon, that's described there in the book of Revelation. Verde is asking me, is this uh, Mecca? Is it Rome or is it New York? And my answer to that question, Verde, is simply this. Yes. Why not? Why not include all of them? Why couldn't they all be within that purview? I would say simply yes. That Babylon is a representation of what I would call the world system in its entirety. Not simply, um, you know, something that comes and goes or can be confined to any one particular city, but the uh, world system in its entirety. And so that's how I would explain it. I would not confine it to one particular city but to um, really uh, the world system in general, especially today more than ever when we really have a global culture in many ways. Um, I I would not restrict it to any one particular city, but just as if you ask me, is um, is it Mecca? Is it Rome? Is it New York? I would just say, yes, it's those. Folks, that's gonna end it for today. As far as I can tell, we had a good live stream going out today, which means that maybe some of the technical changes that we've done have been helpful. I certainly hope um, that's the case. 
Hey, um, hope you can join us next week. I'm looking forward to spending time with you again. And um, thank you for your prayers, your support for the work we do here at Enduring Word. Uh, We love getting quality, free Bible resources out to as broad an audience as we possibly can. When I say as broad an audience, I mean not only English speaking, but we have active translation projects in many, many languages of the world. Again, the whole goal is to get good, free Bible resources out to a broad audience. So I hope that is something helpful for you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And I hope you can join us again. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.